Hello everyone, it's October 9th, 2018. This week we got more news from Asteroid Ryugu, and we have another data relay. Aaron Cross will be talking to us about combustion instability. You're guaranteed to learn something this episode, I promise, and lift off. And we've cleared the tower. Welcome to episode 179 of the Orbital Mechanics Podcast. I'm David. I'm Ben. And I'm Dennis. So, hi, my name is Ben. I'm a little sleepy. You're always sleepy, though. I mean, well, not always sleepy, but I think after we record on Sundays, you generally do take a nap, right? And, no. Uh, oh, no? Okay. No. I, I did last week, I think. Yeah, I'm not good at taking naps. I'm okay at them. Um, I mean, if I do, it's like, you know, maybe like an hour at most. I, I don't sleep long if I take a nap. Yeah, I got too much of a... Uh... I feel like I'm being unproductive if I take a nap. So I got I to gotta be hitting right. a serious wall for me to... Yeah, that's a constant problem that people have. You know, it's, it's like you want to be productive. But then again, if you take a nap, maybe you'll be more productive afterwards. Right. You know, it's not a good attitude. I wish I could. So I guess we could be productive for the next hour or so. So we should do a podcast. I'm down. So let's do this week in spaceflight history. And it looks like uh, everyone guessed correctly. Well, yeah. not everyone, but... Pretty much everybody. Uh, Valentin Frank, Chubby Turkosi, Jay Adink, Manuel Salazar, who I think is a new name, Tim Broadbent, who's a new name, Sam Stadelman, a uh, new name, Jason Friesen, a new name, and nobody else. No, Patrick McGuire. I got you this time, dude. All right. This week in Spaceflight History, uh, the clue from last week was tail off, tail off. Uh, the pronunciation, I think, gives it away. I kind of screwed that one up. <laughs> anyway, this week in spaceflight history is the 12th of October, 1977. It's ALT-15, which is the first flight of shuttle without a tail cone. So uh, Enterprise was used in the approach and landing tests. Uh, I think people are pretty familiar with these. Um, they basically uh, made it on top of... SEA, the shuttle carrier aircraft. So they, they started with ground tests and then they did, uh, captive inert tests where they flew around with, you know, nobody in the shuttle and the shuttle just shut down just to prove that you can indeed fly SEA with a shuttle on top of it. Just getting this thing into the air, right? The concern is you have a giant airplane on top of your airplane. And the way that shuttle sits on top of the SCA, it's actually right in line with the vertical stabilizer and, and the rudder, which happen to be very important for flying a, an airplane uh, in a straight line. So uh, they modified SCA to slap on some vertical stabilizers at the end of the tailplane, um, which definitely helped, especially if you look at the front on view. Um, you can see that those vertical stabilizers on the tailplane are actually between, um, vertically speaking, they're between the wings of the 747 and the shuttle. So they've got this nice clear view of whatever's forward. Not that it's, you know, makes that big of a difference, but they're, they're not occluded by any other, uh, aerodynamic surfaces. Uh, but, you know, the giant vertical stabilizer is, it's got, an entire shuttle in front of it. And the concern is that when the shuttle uh, has its, you know, very uh, abrupt ending at the engines um, that you cause a lot of turbulence and that is going to interact with the, uh, with the rudder and the vertical stabilizer in, 
you know, not a great way. Obviously, you can fly SCA with a shuttle with no tailplane or no uh, tail cone on it. But initially, what they did was they put this big old tail cone to give shuttle a much more aerodynamic back end. Um, it actually makes it look much more like you know, a, a typical airplane, which tend to have, you know, the ends of them tend to get smaller as they, as they uh, go backwards. Um, so it's this giant structure that uh, gets bolted onto the back of a shuttle and makes it easier uh, to fly the SCA and uh, more comfortable. Cause I believe that there's a decent amount of buffeting. Uh, it's a bit of a rougher ride when you've got a shuttle up there without a, without a tail cone. So anyway, they uh, did six flights with the tail cone on, just demonstrating that they're able to fly with a shuttle on top and demonstrating that they're able to uh, successfully release the shuttle. And then, you know, October 12th, 1977, it was the, the mission number was Alt-15, uh, but it was the seventh actual flight and they did it without the tail cone. And there's some great photos uh They'll be in the show notes of Enterprise just barely lifting away from the 747. Really, really uh, a cool mode of testing something, right? Not We've never really done this kind of thing before since. Um, hopefully we will in the future. So yeah, one of the interesting things is that when you take that uh, the tail cone off, you end up drastically increasing the drag of shuttle that, that shuttle experiences. And if you look at uh, the list of flights, you know, just look at the Wikipedia page for the approach and landing tests. You can see the flight time drops off dramatically after uh, Alt-15. You know, they, they are flying from lower altitudes, but I mean, that doesn't account for how drastic of a, of a drop off it is. It goes from something like seven minutes to two minutes going mm -hmm. from release down to landing. Do you know what exactly the, I guess, the glide ratio would be, the difference uh, between no, the two? No, I don't. Uh, so Space Shuttle by itself uh, on approach is a 4.5. So I would guess that with the cone, it's better than that. Yeah. I mean, you can't get much worse than 4.5. Yeah. That's a steep descent. You said 4.5. I thought that when shuttle came down, it, it was actually worse than that. It, it but, may be. I mean, 4.5 is still... That's what's still... listed in uh, the Gliding Flight Wikipedia article. And what's interesting is that that glide ratio changes uh, with speed. So um, Space Shuttle has close to a glide ratio of 1 when it's at hypersonic speeds. But as it comes down through the Mach barrier... Uh, it starts getting worse and worse and worse. Well, no, if it's a glide ratio of one, then wouldn't that be worse? That's like a 45 degree angle, right? Oh, okay. Yeah, you're right. It gets better and better and better. Sure. Th and that would be why you'd heard that it had a, a worse uh, glide ratio. Cool. And do we have a clue for next week? Uh, so I have an audio clue to start out with, but it's actually a video clue. Um, so I'll see if I can upload the video and put it into our Squarespace website. I, I think I think there's a provision for uploading video, but I don't exactly want to like open a a new YouTube upload to do it. But anyway, here here's the audio portion of the clue. Is this an audio clue taken from your own home? Did like, I record this... this audio clue this morning while I was feeding my cat? Yes, I did. <laughs> the sound It sounds like a cat chirping at a squirrel outside a window. Yeah, so uh, in the video, he's actually following me to the kitchen. And that, that is his hungry, feed me, why aren't you like moving faster to give me food, meow. It's uh, next week in 1963. Okay, next week in 1963, cat, food... Uh, <laughs> 
I don't know. Uh, <laughs> this is a weird one, but I'm sure we'll get some correct answers. we got some very clever listeners. So uh, if you think you know what that's all about, just tweet us with the hashtag ThisWeekSF and good luck. Mascot successfully lands on Ryugu's surface. Yay! Yeah, it is rocking it. <laughs> mm-hmm. So, yeah, so Mascot, which is another one of the ultimately four rovers that are going to be dropped from the Hayabusa 2 spacecraft onto asteroid Ryugu's surface, it made its descent just the other day. And so this is a uh, a German-French uh, instrument, actually. So it's uh, kind of a it piggybacked on as part of the mission, and it's a 20 pound or 21 pound or 9.6 kilogram box essentially. And so, um, this it's just general, it's just shaped like a box, there's no other, nothing else to it. And so, but it's got basically the suite of instruments you'd want, you know, for landing on the surface of an asteroid. So, it's got a camera, which is useful for sort of seeing what kind of surface geology is going on there, as well as sending back all these awesome pictures that we get to see. Uh, it's got an infrared radiometer, which is just uh, basically an infrared Im- uh, detector that just measures the heat. And so it's kind of a, getting a thermal uh, map of the uh, surface around it. Uh, it has an infrared spectrometer, which is basically just this kind of thing sticking out, ever a little nub sticking out of one side of the box. And when it makes contact with the surface, it just basically shines a light on the, you know, sample there. And based on the infrared spectrum that it detects, uh, it can tell kind of what type of elements are in there. Uh, And so it's going to be looking for organic stuff, which we know is there to some degree, as well as uh, uh, iron, silicates, all sorts of things there. Because understanding the compositions of these is a really big deal. So that's the, you know, the instrument for getting the composition. And then it's got a magnetometer to measure, you know, the magnetic field that's going on there. As I'm thinking about it, you know, the thing about magnetometers, they often, right, are put on like a boom that's pretty far removed from the spacecraft Mm -hmm. because of the electronics uh, giving off its own magnetic field, but that's not happening here. So I just, uh, they must do some clever engineering to kind of shield it, I guess, or... Or just accept the... I mean, I suppose it could compensate for it by knowing, you know, what kind of magnetic field it gives off itself mm-hmm. and then just yeah like compensating for that maybe i don't know yeah that's that's yeah maybe that that's what i'm thinking too especially since it's a small 20 pound box so it's not going to be given off yeah well and it, it's also pretty simple so hopefully that uh magnetic mm-hmm. field isn't going to change too much as it operates all right so unlike the previous rovers which have uh solar panels uh plastered on their surfaces mascot is just battery powered and so it's got about 16 hours of life before it shuts off and so you know, within a day it was uh, done, but it was making continuous measurements the entire time on the surface. This is a simple box, but this one can also uh, reorient itself like if it needs to, because it most likely would, because it's just a box falling from space onto this asteroid. So, and it doesn't have any other means of controlling the descent, which I kind of have a difficult time saying descent because it's like it's almost not even descending but i guess it is Mm -hmm. it's more like making contact with something with a little bit of gravity but yeah so this thing can actually reset itself right that's yeah that's a good point i forgot to yeah highlight is that like the other ones you know they call them rovers but they're really hoppers and so to deal with the uh, microgravity on the surface because again this asteroid is about a kilometer in diameter so very very low gravity environment and so it just has a flywheel within it that just spins up 
and that propels the hopper into the air and so it spends you know maybe 10 minutes before it finally slowly coasts back down and and they had to hop a couple times um so i thought this was fascinating so when they first landed right so i'd mentioned last time how you know dark asteroids are and this asteroid uh is a carbonaceous one a lot of carbon on the surface so it's especially dark so we're talking about a reflectivity or albedo uh, comparable to you know black acrylic paint blacker than coal and mascot happened to land on a particularly dark part of the asteroid and so it actually couldn't orient itself it didn't know which direction was up i guess because the blackness of the asteroids comparable to the blackness of space yeah and so the the first hop it did was solely so it could figure out what was going on and so after it hopped it landed in a more favorable position or location and so it was able to then okay this way's up this way's down and whatnot and so that was uh funny so that was the first hop that it did and then uh it did a second hop because that the spectrometer that i mentioned uh, needs to be in contact with the asteroid surface in order to check out you know not so much sample but to kind of you know beam its light at and measure the composition and they basically did another smaller hop to give itself a better orientation. And I wonder how much of this is just kind of like hoping for the best, right? Because, yeah. I mean, you got this big raggedy surface you're on and you're just, well, let's just roll the die and uh, hop to hopefully a better place. So that worked out well. And then it did a third hop, which was a more, a, you know, a more substantive one so that it could just get a, a whole fresh location to get new measurements on, as well as, you know, using its regular camera to actually get a stereoscopic view of the terrain around it. And so one of the ideas is to basically build up a three-dimensional model of what the terrain's actually like there. It's great. Uh, I love the Hayabusa team and what they're doing, where they're just sending out awesome pictures after awesome pictures. This is a really fun mission. It's got spacecraft trailing behind the asteroid. It's got different landers landing at different times. And so uh, Mascot, which you know has its own individual Twitter you can check out, it took a great image uh, during its descent. Uh, the mascot rover itself uh, imaged its own shadow like Hayabusa 2 had done, which was funny because Hayabusa 2's looked kind of like a TIE fighter. This one was just a box. <laughs> so you could just see there's a little square as well as that German uh, sounding, uh, that German optical effect that Ben had brought up last time. What was that word again? Do you, I don't do you remember that, that one, Ben? Uh, yeah, I'm trying to remember it. I don't. Heiligenstein. Oh, Heilig, yeah, Heiligenstein. Oh, Heiligenstein. I got the shine part. I couldn't remember the rest of it. And so, I mean, you, you want to check out those pictures. Uh, it uh, The Hayabusa 2 uh, craft, it took three pictures which caught Mascot during its initial descent. And so there's a little, you know, three-frame movie you can check out of it kind of tumbling on its way down so you can tell that the you know, figuring out its orientation once it landed was important. Hayabusa also took a nice image that captured both Mascot when it was at a lower altitude as well as Mascot's shadow. So mm -hmm. before it reached the surface, but while it was there close enough to be able to get both in the same frame. And then there's surface images for Mascot and uh, presumably some more. One surface image is pretty cool. It's got a nice little kind of glimmer off to the side, which is evidently sunlight reflecting off of the, you know, flat surfaces of the lander. Great pictures to check out. Like, if you didn't know how small it was, it, it looks like a planetary surface, you know? It, it's such a strange thing to see. Isn't, right, it, isn't right. that so satisfying that, that, like, the universe just looks like itself, you know? It's not like there's, mm. you know, crazy uh, Star Trek uh, sound stages out there. It's just like, rocks look like rocks. No matter where they are, they look yeah. like rocks. <laughs> and this that, that rubble pile kind of designation for this type of asteroid is really, you know that really jumps out at you when you see some of these. It's just, yeah, 
pile of rocks. And so, uh, you know, it did uh, 17 hours of just pure data taking, um, not firing all the instruments and cameras at once, but, you know, it managed to do everything successfully. And so it actually, yeah, made it an hour longer than the battery, you know, what they intended, the 16 hours. Nice. And so Hayabusa 2, you know, after getting a little closer, releasing mascot, is now back at its 20 kilometer altitude above the surface of Ryugu, but um, it was actually delayed uh, uh, by to head back up there uh, by a, a typhoon that was approaching Japan at the time. And so they've got the policy where they don't issue commands because there's, you know, a couple dozen minute delay time. And so they uh, didn't want to issue any commands to the spacecraft, the rovers, while this typhoon was threatening Japan. And so that passed. Hayabusa 2 is back where it wants to be right now above the surface. And so the next step is at the end of the month, Hayabusa 2 itself. So the spacecraft is going to make its first landing and actually get physical samples of the surface. So that'll be later this month in October. I don't know if they have a planned date yet, but if you uh, are on Twitter or I'm sure they're on all sorts of, you know, the major social media platforms, but I would recommend definitely checking out what Hayabusa 2 is doing. It's really exciting. Yeah, well said. Seeing all this going on with this little asteroid makes me think that maybe a redirect mission is probably a lot easier than we think because obviously the hard part is just getting down to it, but obviously that's not the case with a small asteroid because, you know, there's virtually no gravity. So it's not like entry, descent, and landing is even a thing. You just have to get to it. Then from there, you can do pretty much whatever you want. How hard could it be to simply give it a little push in one direction or another? Because there is talk about, I guess, like actually redirecting an asteroid. I'm not sure why. Why you'd want to other than to you know like bring it into earth orbit and maybe or move it away from earth orbit that, that's one of the things this high this ryugu is a uh, a near-earth asteroid and so it's mm-hmm. not on an orbit that actually makes it a threat itself but it's you know part of that class and so that's one of the things they kind of want to learn about asteroids i guess more generally like why do you land on them and so this makes it seem like a pretty straightforward thing that could be done i mean obviously you would need some kind of propulsion but it just doesn't look like it's that difficult because it's not like landing on Mars, you know. It's pretty straightforward. You do have to get the rendezvous. That's, you know, the very hard part. But once you're there, you can kind of just do whatever. Maybe this bodes well for redirecting something out of Earth's path or maybe like bringing something to Earth if you want to. I don't know why, but I I think it would be cool to just bring an asteroid somewhere near Earth orbit. Obviously, be very careful about it. You don't want to, you know, start dropping rocks on Earth. That'd be bad, but... (laughs) You know, the asteroid mining, I mean, that could be a very real, very important thing to do. Well, there's the argument that it could never be financially feasible because it takes way more energy to get to it and do all that stuff than the actual minerals are worth. Um, I think that that still stands. I don't know if that could ever change. I mean, if we have finite you know, there's only so much stuff on the Earth, and so I could imagine, you know, on a much longer time scale, if you exhaust, you know, that curve, or the price of these precious metals on Earth are going to just go up and up and up monotonically, I think. You would have to be pretty low on precious metals, like very low. like Right, right. None. That's what I'm saying. Yeah, this ain't something in our lifetimes I think will actually be terribly important. I just want to see astronauts visit an asteroid, and obviously that's probably not going to happen in deep space. So if, if, if they could just bring one here... Cool. I think that'd be fun. So I think the real benefit of using resources in space is going to be when we're, you know, building uh, habitats in space. I think it's pretty reasonable to think that there's a point where it's going to make a lot more sense to just use resources that are already in orbit if you can, or, or, you know, already off the Earth, right? Because they're still a, a long ways away from low Earth orbit. But, you know, if you're building something out there, especially if you can use, you know, gravity tractors and other 
you know, super low power, long term, you know, kind of propulsion. It seems like that's more reasonable than trying to flood the earth art market with, you know, a bunch of nickel or whatever. Even if you wanted to build something, let's say, in low Earth orbit, I think in that case it would be worth it to, you know, bring something to Earth because the cost difference is so huge trying to get raw materials from Earth into space that it actually is, is cheaper to bring them from many hundreds of millions of miles away to low Earth orbit just to build there rather than trying to get it from the surface of the Earth because there's a huge difference in energy just trying to get off the surface of the Earth. I mean, that's a delta V of like seven miles per second or something total, something, I mean, something like that. But to bring a giant asteroid to Earth, it just requires a little nudge. Yeah, yeah, there was there was a paper I'd read years ago that I think I might have to brush up on my asteroid mining since this has come up twice now in like the last <laughs> couple of weeks. Let's do some short and sweet, and what do we have for our first one, Ben? First up, changes are being planned for SLS's upper stage. As a result of the exploration upper stage being pushed back to the fourth flight of SLS, likely sometime in 2024, NASA has asked Boeing to make some improvements. The added time until service will give Boeing additional time to improve lift capacity of the upper stage, or possibly just change the orbital techniques for delivery to cislunar space. Though there hasn't been any specific requirements outlined for the performance increase, the hope is to get one or two tons of co-manifested payload carried aloft under the Orion spacecraft. And next up, commercial crew test flights slip to next year. Big surprise there. At the IAC in Brennan, Germany, NASA released a new timetable for commercial crew flights. The most recent dates had Dragon 2 doing an uncrewed demo flight in November of this year with Starliner doing a similar test flight in January. Both test flights have now been pushed back several months. The pushback for the SpaceX launch to January was largely due to docking opportunities aboard the ISS. SpaceX will now conduct its test flight in January and Boeing in March. The first crewed flights are now targeted for June and August, respectively. So, big surprise, it slips to next year. Okay, stand by. We're looking at it. Questions, comments, and correction burns. And this week we got one from Nero Bro in our subreddit. So this is a nice little clarification. Would you say, Ben? Yeah. Well, I mean, we we breezed past this, and I I definitely think it's worth getting this right because we we didn't quite get it right. So the comment is uh, talking about pressure fed versus self pressurizing tanks. And uh, here's a good summation. One is about tanks. One is about the engine. So uh, self pressurizing tanks uh, are important because they become structural members, right? They, you keep enough uh, pressure in them. And even if they've got super thin walls, they can actually uh, take a, a reasonable amount of load, just like, you know, a soda can before and after you open it. And the important thing to note here is that turbo pumps do require pressurized tanks as well, right? Obviously, they increase that pressure pretty dramatically, um, but you wind up with ingestion issues if you have them, you know, sucking on a on a negatively pressurized tank or, or too low of a pressurized tank. So you can get compressor stalls, you can get cavitation, which is really dangerous. Uh, and and other things. So uh, Nero Bro says, as you noted, turbo pumps are hard, so keeping that head pressure reasonably consistent matters a lot. So that's really important. And as you drain fuel out of the tank, you know you can pressurize it on the ground, but as you pull matter out of the tank, you have to add matter back in. So most tanks are pressurized by helium, but in you know, an autogenous pressurization situation, instead of having helium being pumped in, you can just heat the tank. 
um, to get some of the propellant to boil off and add extra, not extra matter because it's the same amount of matter, but you know, you're changing the phase. Obviously this is really something I don't need to explain. And so yeah, CO2 canisters, like uh, paintball canisters, they autogenously pressurize. When you bleed off uh, CO2, you don't have your PSI drop. It actually stays pretty much constant at uh, 850 PSI um, because as you lose liquid or, or as you lose gas, the liquid boils off. And I think it comes down to the, uh, the heat of the system and the, uh, the vapor pressure of the liquid, which for CO2 is obviously super, super high. So yeah, uh, when we're talking about autogenous pressurization, that's about keeping the tank full to feed the engine and to keep the tank rigid. It's not about uh, making pressure-fed uh, rockets possible. So thank you so much for that clarification. I'm, I'm glad we were able to straighten that one out. That is a good clarification that I guess I, like now that he mentions it, you know, yeah. that makes total sense and I don't know why I didn't think about it. Yeah, it's, it's something that we knew. We just forgot that we knew it, I think. <laughs> All right, so this week, uh, number two in uh, the old data relay segment that we're now doing. Uh, I don't know why I said the old one because it's brand new, but <laughs> we have with us Aaron Cross, and welcome to the show, Aaron. Thank you. And you're going to talk to us this week about combustion dynamics and instability. So this is like, I feel like we're really getting into the some like very interesting stuff, huh? Yeah, this is this stuff is that is, yeah, this is like above our heads, but I think that we can keep our heads above water at, you know, <laughs> like as you walk us through it. That's the idea. Can we start off with a quick intro from you, uh, Aaron? Can you, can you tell? who you are? Yeah, sure. Um, well, my name is Aaron Cross. Um, I am an engineer. I work in combustion research. Um, I went to undergraduate at Rice University in Houston, small school. Um, did my master's degree at Purdue University um, in Indiana. So cradle of quarterbacks or astronauts, depending on what, <laughs> what you prefer. Um, and then I've been in the aerospace industry um, for probably about six years now. So somebody who actually knows what they're talking about for once, not just David and Dennis and I kind of joking around. Yep. <laughs> yeah. Well, well I, I have a slight disclaimer here, which is I am not going to call myself an expert here. I do know enough to get into trouble. <laughs> right. That's uh, a very common place for us to be in. So what the heck is combustion instability? Well, um, so I think sometimes people call it combustion dynamics. It does tend to get referred to as combustion instability in rockets. Um, and what it actually is, is a feedback loop between pressure in the combustor oscillating or fluctuating, and then causing heat release in the combustor to also fluctuate, which then builds upon itself. So it's a vicious cycle, and often it can look like the flow will fluctuate, which will cause the uh, flame or the heat release to fluctuate, and that will create a pressure fluctuation, and that will feed back and cause the flow to fluctuate, and that reinforces itself. So if you actually end up producing more energy in the system, then the system can damp or take out, then that qualifies as an unstable system. So it's this, it, it becomes almost a runaway effect. It does limit itself. Um, and we can talk about that, that later, but you get this vicious cycle. So sometimes the consequences of this are very minimal. Um, for example, the shuttle solid rocket boosters typically have a, f or have, or had, I think they fixed it, um, had a 14 hertz to longitudinal instability. 
So these are pressure waves that move back and forth the length of the SRB, and NASA just decided to live with it. And That's uh, some, 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 well, so they're 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 low, and the the thing is that the amplitude is low. So mm. if you have a low amplitude, then it's it's a slight uh, vibration. The high amplitude is what you're going to worry about. And sometimes, of course, you do get these high amplitudes that can reinforce the natural frequency of components or your structure and lead to, I guess, RUDS events. Um, that's that's one of my two favorite acronyms in rockets, um, but uh, rapid unplanned disassembly. So so let me ask you, um, I don't know if you actually know this, um, and I feel like a lot of people don't actually know this, but the sound of the shuttle SRBs has that crackly poppy sound and i was always told that it was actually due to this 14 hertz instability um but more recently i've heard a more credible explanation which is that um they're so loud that they actually max out the amount of energy that can be transmitted acoustically through the air and so the crackling is actually the the air itself bottoming out at the amount of uh, energy it can actually transmit to your ears. Do you know which it is? I do not. You're making me want to go back and look at shuttle launches now. <laughs> um, but I, I, I don't. Okay. Um, but that that's actually, that's a very interesting question. No, I, I've, I don't think I've ever talked to anybody who like for sure was like, oh no, it's this, which makes me think it's probably a complex. Yeah, I'm going to have to disappoint you on that one. <laughs> <It's okay. laughs> Sorry. <laughs> Uh, okay, so you've got such a cool layout here. You have a couple of case studies, so we're going to talk about practical examples of these things, right? Right. So I thought it's it's kind of a complex topic to go into, and basically as soon as you start diving into it, you get into a lot of heavy math pretty quickly. Um, but I thought an interesting way to, to talk about maybe some of the concepts in combustion instability would be to go and look at some historical case studies mm. and sort of talk about... Um, where they encountered combustion instability and uh, what the problems were, what the solutions were, and maybe sort of approach it that way. Um, plus, it's a little more entertaining as well. So one, one good example um, that gets brought up a lot of the time when you go to a talk or a, a lecture about combustion instability is POGO on the Saturn V engines. And there's actually multiple examples of POGO on, on Saturn V, but because this is such a common example, I found it very interesting to actually look into the details of, of what went on here. Um, so you can sort of get an idea of the, the full story instead of just passing references to it. So, so POGO, as I'm sure many of you know, um, is this very low frequency vibration that travels longitudinally along the length of the rocket. And it's, of course, nicknamed Pogo because the rocket appears to be jumping up and down like a pogo stick. Um, so it's a concern because you can impair your, your crew from functioning. It can produce unplanned engine shutdowns or even structural failures. So this is uh, definitely something that, that was a concern for NASA in the development um, and operation, interestingly, of the Saturn V. Um, so actually the second uncrewed Saturn V, which was Apollo 6 in 1968, they unexpectedly experienced POGO at uh, 5 hertz between 105 and 140 seconds into the flight. This is the first stage flight. So they saw um, 0.6 Gs at the command module. Okay, so this is like, you know, half of... Um, 
gravitational acceleration, so it was definitely noticeable. So they did know going into this that the first stage engines, the F1 engines, had a combustion chamber vibration at about five and a half hertz. But what they didn't know was that as the vehicle mass reduced, because they're burning fuel, during flight, the frequency of the structural vibrations started coinciding with the engine frequency. So you have your structural frequency coupling with your free vibration frequency of your combustion chamber. So one is talking to the other and they're reinforcing each other. And I'm waving my hands in the air, but you really can't see my hands. So anyway, but uh, so what was happening was that the oxidizer feed system was feeling these pulsations and sending pulses of oxidizer into the chamber at five hertz, causing the, the, the pogo issue. What they did actually to solve this problem um, was that they had what they call pre-valves um, on the LOX feeds, which basically look like shut-off valves. Um, and I, I could be incorrect on this, but to me they look like shut-off valves. And they had cavities inside the valves. What they did was they took advantage of these cavities and pressurized them with helium gas um, that they already had on board to pressurize the tanks. So they bled some helium into these cavities and they created dampers. To, so they actually absorbed energy from the, uh, from the system. Uh, from the oxidizer feed system. And they ended up changing the frequency in the oxfeed system. So the oxfeed system is no longer pulsing at 5 hertz. Uh, it's pulsing at something else, and that actually worked to decouple the combustor um, and the pulsing in the combustor from the structural vibrations. Like such a simple, clever solution. Yeah, it's nice to take advantage of what you actually have <laughs> already. Um, so they did complete these conversions on the pre-valves in time for Apollo 8, which was the first crewed flight. And so that, that's the story with the first stage Pogo on the Saturn V. Now, what's actually more interesting is the Pogo story on the second stage, um, which actually got referred to by some people as a mini Pogo, um, but it could have been much more severe uh, in consequences. It was actually an 18 hertz vibration of the center engine. So there's five engines um, in this in this cluster, and the center engine peaked at plus minus nine g's of acceleration. So that's that's quite a lot of vibration at the center engine. Um, they didn't feel that much vibration at the command module. Um, the accelerometer at at that bulkhead picked up. Uh, a peak of uh, 0.1 g's because um, you're sitting further up the the length of the end uh, sorry length of the rocket so the the wave structure that goes through the rocket um, you may not be sitting at the the maximum amplitude point there but it was certainly enough for them to feel and report so this engine cluster sits underneath the LOX tank and the center engine was mounted on a cross beam structure it was vibrating with the bottom of the LOX tank. Um, so it wasn't really threatening at the crew cabin, but at the engine mount you have this 9G vibration, um, which could end up posing a structural threat to the crossbeam. So on Apollo 9, the next flight, they tried to increase the LOX tank pressure. So the idea was that you would make the oxidizer lines more rigid by having higher pressure and detune the system that way. So you would try and increase the frequency going through the oxidizer line by, incre by increasing the rigidity, and that would help you detune the system. I can totally see somebody going, okay, well, let's increase the pressure of the system, and maybe that'll change the 
the frequency at which you know these vibrations can actually move through but the idea that they're increasing pressure specifically to make these lines more rigid is insane to me like that's such a like it's a simple change but like the distance between the change and the effect is so long. Like, it just seems insane to me. I think it's a really good example of systems level thinking, like yeah. systems engineering. Yeah. Um, but it's it's guys that really have to know their stuff and what their components talk to. So I guess, unfortunately, the predictions that they did in modeling this behavior were not correct. So they actually, on Apollo 9, saw 17 hertz oscillation um, between 500 and 540 seconds into the flight, and the peak amplitude was actually plus minus 12 Gs, so they actually increased in amplitude. So the next missions, for the next missions, they decided to kind of just run with this, live with the pogo, and what they ended up doing was shutting down the center engine 60 to 75 seconds early in order to avoid the worst of the pogo. So they just said, well, we're just we're just going to try and avoid it, um, shut down the engines early, and let the remaining four outer engines just burn a little longer to make up the, the lost thrust. Um, so Apollo 10, this worked fine. Apollo 11, they had a small pogo incident, but it wasn't a big deal. Um, on Apollo 12, they did have uh, four occurrences. So NASA thought that it was uh, this was nonlinear behavior, which refers is characteristic of a self-excited system, mm. um, which is what what this basically is. Um, the pogo is appearing uh, without any apparent external perturbation. Um, so NASA thought that this this uh, behavior had reached a limit cycle. So the vibrations are growing exponentially, and then they maintain this constant high level, which is re- referred to as as the limit. But so unfortunately, NASA was was wrong um, about the limit cycle. The, the this section should probably be subtitled "Jim Lovell cannot catch a break," because <laughs> uh, on Apollo 13 they did run into some issues with this. So most combustion instability is self-excited, as they thought, um, and does exhibit this nonlinear behavior. But it is very difficult to model and predict because it's not simple. Uh, it's not a me- simple mechanical system like a mass spring damper system, and it's not just a simple acoustic system. There are turbulence and flow separation and chemical kinetics and heat release all working into this, which makes it very difficult to model. So NASA cannot be faulted, um, I think, for, for not being able to, to predict what happened on Apollo 13. They did manage to develop a helium bleed pogo suppressor for the J2 engine, the second stage engine. It was available for Apollo 13, but because they would have had to integrate the installation um, and approval of this suppressor into Apollo 13's flight schedule, um, they opted not to fly it on Apollo 13. Um, They thought also that they had it pretty much under control by shutting down the center engine early. So on Apollo 13, they did have two occurrences of Pogo, much as had happened before. Um, This was pretty expected. Now, the third episode of Pogo, um, if you look at the plot of the accelerometers, they reached three Gs at at the center engine. Um, and they sat there for about 30 seconds, so they must have thought, oh, okay, we've seen this before, this is, this is okay. And then the accelerometer hit the ceiling. Mm-hmm. Um, so it maxed out. The accelerometer only measured up to 20 Gs. That, that was oh, the range, yeah. 0 to 20 Gs. So it maxed out, 
and NASA later estimated that they probably reached around 34 Gs at the engine attachment. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the 34 Gs, that is the fuel or the oxidizer, I guess, like slamming up against the inlet for the turbo pump? No, so it's the bottom of the LOX tank vibrating and vibrating the cross beam on which the center engine is mounted. So they had an accelerometer on this, this cross beam, and that's, that's what was reading 34 Gs. I see. It was a vibration. Or reading 20 Gs. <laughs> or, right. Yeah. Yikes. <laughs> Not. <laughs> oh, man. Um, so if you, you visualize what's going on here, and you have this structural vibration, um, so what's, what's holding your engine on is vibrating at 34 Gs. Then we have this, it's vibrating your propellant line, the propellant inside is f now fluctuating, which is making the mass in the combustor and the fuel-ox ratio fluctuate, which is making your flame fluctuate, your heat release fluctuate, and that's making the pressure in your combustor fluctuate. So at the end of this whole chain of events, a pressure sensor on the engine's combustion chamber said yikes and commanded a shutdown. And this was two minutes before it was actually supposed to shut down. And so that was actually what got noticed by the command mm. crew, not necessarily um, any vibration at, at the command module. So they uh, said, well, we're still alive, let's go. <laughs> um, so in the post-flight investigation, um, they estimated that they could have seen just one more amplitude growth cycle like that. Um, and to quote from, from the papers that have been written about that, um, only one more could have been sustained without catastrophic structural failure. So after this whole saga, the pogo suppressor was installed on the center engine, and for the further Apollo missions, they did not see any further incidents of pogo. So I, at this point, it's kind of all's well, all's well that ends well. <laughs> <laughs> so the, the damper that they installed is the same damper that was installed on the first I, stage. I don't believe so. So this one was referred to as a helium bleed toroidal pogo suppressor. So it sounds like a separate component that they created. I have, I have a basic question. So were they changing much about the actual rockets between, you know, Apollo's 10, 11, 12, and 13? Uh, aside from trying to beat down any pogo oscillations? Because how come, yeah, I guess how come, what, what about the flights made some, you know, Apollo 10 nominal and then Apollo 13 suffer? A few episodes of Pogo. So I think, I guess, so for the first part of your question, were they changing things? I don't think they were, just based hmm. on the amount of time it takes to go through design changes and to review those design changes and to make sure everybody's on board with it and then write procedures for operating whatever the design changes is. So I, I'm pretty sure that they didn't actually change that much um, or anything very significant between those flights. Um, I guess the second part of your comment on you know why were some quiet and why were some not honestly there's a lot about combustion instability and especially mm. what initiates combustion instability that is still not understood hmm. oh wow it, it's probably just because there are you know like you said so many little factors that come into play that each vehicle is slightly different and that's all it takes you know like it could just be one little thing or i mean who can say but um there are these 
very little things that can, you know, sort of cause this positive feedback loop. And that would be my guess that they're just slightly different. They don't have to be much different, but just, you know, like ever so slightly. And the pogo instability is happening on the center engine, right? So that clearly is, you know, the issue. It's just exactly when and how much that happens. Yeah. I mean, you're definitely giving me the impression that combustion dynamics are very complicated. And so I, I can understand why. I see. That makes sense. Thanks, Aaron. So that wasn't really the only, um, experience that Saturn V had with combustion instability. And actually what was more significant was in the development of the Saturn V F1 engines, they had this massive program called Project First um, that was dedicated to solving combustion instability in the combustor itself of the mm. F1 engine. The, the F1 engine is the really large engines at, at the base of the, the Saturn engine. The injector face is 40 inches in diameter, um, which as far as rocket engines go is, is pretty darn big. And it, it's so the, it was a LOX RP-1, so oxygen and, and kerosene engine. So from January 1959 to May of 1960, they had 44 engine tests and 20 of these, almost half of them experienced combustion instability. So I think this definitely convinced uh, Rocketdyne that that something was still problematic with, with the engine. And the amplitudes um, were not small either. They were double the average pressure in the in the combustor. So these are these are massive um, spikes um, in instability. So what was happening when, when this would happen is they would see erosion and burning of the injector face. And when they looked at those patterns, um, they sort of deduced that there were large radial and tangential, so spinning motions hmm. um, in the combustor. So this is different than pogo. Pogo is a pressure fluctuation or, uh, along the length of the rocket. This is uh, going from inside to outside of that injector face and then round and round uh, tangentially. So they also noted that when they were testing this, that the, the flame or the exhaust coming out of the nozzle, you'd actually see rotations in that. So there's an Ars Technica article about this that basically phrases it, um, saying that this would cause violent oscillations in the thrust that eventually blew the engine apart. Mm. So that was probably a good indicator, too, that something was wrong um, when, the, when the engine started coming apart. Yeah. So this, this project, Project First, was started, and it ended up lasting four years. It was a huge program, um, which involved a huge amount of effort. They did a total of 1,332 tests with 108 different injectors and 12 different uh, baffle configurations. So this is probably the most intensive and possibly expensive program that has ever been devoted primarily to solving combustion instability. What they ended up doing was, uh, it was a combination of putting in new injector elements, or actually a new injector plate, um, new injectors, and then adding these injector plate baffles. Um, so if you look up into the nozzle of the F1 engine, um, if you're like out at Rocket Park in Houston or some other some other place where they have a Saturn V engine on display, if you look up the, into the nozzle and see the uh, upstream face of the combustion chamber, you'll see a plate with a lot of little holes in it, which is the uh, injector plate. And then there's, uh, it's you'll notice it's segmented. There are walls running 
in, in different directions um, around uh, the injector face, and these are the baffles. So eventually uh, they got it to the point where the engine was able to resist both self-excited and externally perturbed instabilities, and they actually had both of those. To understand why this solution works, you first need to understand what's actually happening in the combustion chamber. So the F1 propellant injection is a self-impinging doublet. So you have two streams of oxidizer that collide with each other and they form what are called spray fans. So they, they collide with each other. You see this sheet that uh, sort of disperses into ligaments and then droplets and the droplets fly off downstream. And then they're also two streams of fuel that collide in a similar fashion. So this is a uh, self-impinging doublet. And they've got thousands of these injector elements um, on the injector face. This happens uh, within the first three inches. This uh, spray collision and then uh, droplet dispersion happens within the first three inches downstream of the injector face. And because uh, LOX has a lower heat of vaporization, LOX vaporizes almost completely within this first three inches. And then moving downstream, about three to 10 inches downstream, the liquid droplets of fuel also vaporize. So you have, in, in this space, three, three to 10 inches downstream, you have gaseous oxygen uh, flowing uh, very quickly around liquid droplets of fuel. And then within that, that space, the, the droplets of fuel heat up and, and vaporize. And then your main combustion zone, where you actually have your fire, sits at 10 inches or more downstream. So the combustor is also uh, film-cooled, uh, which is important to note later. So the combustor is film-cooled with fuel, so they run fuel, the RP-1, um, over the walls of the chamber. So between the, the chamber wall and the hot gas, you have this, this liquid, um, which serves to keep the, the hot gas away from melting your, your walls of your combustion chamber. So at least two things were happening to drive self-excited instability near the injector face. So the first thing was that the oscillations in the chamber tended to move the individual injector elements. So you have your, your little injector elements wiggling with your uh, gas oscillations in, in your chamber. So they're moving from side to side. How Do you know how much? Like, that's got to be a tiny wiggle, right? I, I don't know the displacement that yeah. was that was there. I could probably, probably look into it. There's probably a report somewhere. <laughs> <laughs> um, and then when the gas was oscillating, the fuel and ox jets that were coming out of the uh, injector elements were also moving. So you have the injectors moving, and then you have the fuel and ox jets moving, um, and this is all in uh, driven by the gas oscillation. So I sort of alluded to this earlier, um, but you have energy gain in the system, which can be, is called driving. Um, so the system increases in energy, and then you have the system uh, taking energy out of of the, uh, the combustion response or the damping of the system. So if that energy increase is greater than the amount of energy being taken out of the system, then you have this, this instability. So when you are trying to fix combustion instability, you can attack the problem from the driving side or you can attack it from the damping side of this, this feed, feedback loop. So if you're trying to attack the driving side, then you consider what factors cause or promote the fluctuation. If you're going 
for a solution from the damping side, then you seek to do more absorption in the system. So you introduce something that can, can absorb uh, some of the heat energy or some of the pressure energy or some of the flow energy. I guess to give an example of damping, um, if you bounce a basketball on a pillow, you'll notice that it's, it's harder to do. You have to introduce more energy to, to the basketball. Um, you can still bounce it on the pillow, but the ball doesn't go as high and also it changes the frequency. This is interesting to know. So that, that's an example of um, the pillow taking energy out of that system. It's, it's absorbing some of that energy. So solutions for this instability near the injector face, they actually approached it from both the driving and the damping side. So they redesigned the injectors, um, which were a driving factor. So they redesigned them to produce larger fuel drops. So you have drops that take longer to vaporize and they also have more momentum. So they go further downstream. Um, they, you have, they, also had a higher relative velocity between the gaseous oxygen and the liquid fuel. So what this is going to do is it's going to increase the shear forces that strip uh, smaller droplets off of that, that larger fuel droplet. So you have higher shear forces, which gives you better atomization. So these led to more uniform fuel and ox mixing. Um, so your fuel and oxygen are more evenly distributed within each other um, so that it was less prone to variation in the fuel ox ratio. Um, so your heat release was more robust to variation um, when you did have the fuel and ox ratio varying. Um, it also pushed the combustion zone further downstream, further away from the injector face. So you were able to move that, that heat zone further away from damaging your hardware. Um, now the baffles were a solution from the damping side. So they were added to damp the transverse oscillations in particular. Um, they tried 12 different baffle patterns. Um, so the baffles are these three inch tall walls. Um, and what they ended up going with was a design that divides the face into five inner and eight outer sections. So they were, in theory, they're supposed to interrupt the pressure waves that are moving parallel to the face. So they only have small areas um, across which to travel instead of traveling across the entire injector face. And they're also, in consequence, they also shield the fuel and ox jets from, from gaseous fluctuations. Yeah, so, and the, these are very noticeable when, when you look at the injector face. They're the things that look like walls. Mm -hmm. I've actually always wondered why they were there, and you just answered that because uh, it looks cool, but I know it's not for aesthetic reasons, so. <laughs> Those are your grandparents' tax dollars at work. <laughs> um, so, interestingly, uh, in, in order to test stability, of the F1 engine, what they would and, and the recovery, um, they would perturb the system. And the way that they chose to perturb the system, um, they would set off what they called a bomb in the combustor. It sounds very threatening, um, but uh, it was actually a 13.5 grain, which amounts to like 0.87 grams of powder. I guess it was probably gunpowder or black powder. And they mounted it on the side of the test chamber during combustion, and then they would um, detonate this and watch how long it took the pressure oscillations to mm -hmm. dissipate. And some there are some explanations um, that I've actually I've come across some things on YouTube that would talk about how they I think one guy said they set off bombs in the engine while it was flying, and 
which is not true. Um, this is probably what he was referring to, <laughs> yeah. um, in in some sort of um, manner that got uh, that, that that didn't get communicated properly. Um, but so they would set off what what they call these these bombs in in the test chamber and to to perturb the system. So what we've talked about um, at the injector phase is an example of self-excited instability, which is a nonlinear instability. Um, now, linear instabilities, um, which are excited by external disturbances, um, were also present. Um, so these also tend to reach um, a maximum amplitude, but this is only because you're, usually your, your perturbation that drives it has finite power. Um, if it had infinite power, then a linear instability would would propagate indefinitely. So they started to work, as they were starting to work on redesigning the injectors and adding baffles, um, they did see improvements in stability, but they also saw, and I'm, I'm quoting here, low frequency, steep fronted, high amplitude waves. And so these are these are waves that um, would be, wouldn't, wouldn't occur very rapidly, but they would be pretty pretty steep um, and, and high amplitude when they when they did. And so there were these sharp surges that were occurring periodically, and they called them uh, resurging um, because it was common to see uh, this this type of behavior when you have um, basically small explosions in your in your combustion mm -hmm. chamber. Um, so they they would appear and then disappear, and they weren't exactly completely periodic. They were kind of irregular. They would show up anywhere within 100 to 140 hertz. Mm -hmm. um, so everybody's scratching their heads, saying, "What's going on here?" Um, they did have, as I mentioned, uh, the film cooling on the combustor chamber walls. So this is a film of kerosene running over the walls. And when they did this bombing to test stability um, of, of the system, they would set up a wave in the film cooling, or in the film for the film cooling. And this would cause fuel to periodically detach from the film layer, shoot into the, into the combustion zone, mm. and then combust which cause these sharp surges. So it kind of sounds like they are causing a problem by doing the bombing, but you also have to remember that the bombing is simulating onset of sudden instability. So it's simulating instability that could potentially appear from somewhere else. So they solved this problem um, by redesigning the injectors to deliver a more ideal thickness of cooling film. So it actually turned out that they didn't need to use as much fuel in cooling as they thought they did. So they went from using 10.9% of the fuel as coolant to only 4.6%. So there, there were more than half of the fuel that they were using was not actually required um, to cool. So it actually resulted in, in better performance since they were using more fuel to burn in the combustion chamber rather than to, to cool. So I guess these are these are a couple of uh, examples of combustion instability for, for liquid rockets. Um, and I think you tend to get some fairly complex um, cases in liquid rockets because the systems are so complex. Um, and especially since we tend to use these for the really large, expensive launch vehicles. Oh, sorry. I got to let my brain expand back out. Holy yeah. cow. That's... <laughs> Like those are, like you said, those are super complex, uh, dynamics that like just imagining how the dynamics are supposed to work ideally is kind of tough, but it's so well, crazy. Ideally, to... they're not supposed to be there. <laughs> <laughs> well, no, no, no. I, mean, I mean, like, 
like these injector plates. Like it, it's funny because like we think about, you know, oh, you dump fuel and oxidizer into a combustion chamber and it goes boom. But it's like so much more complex than that. You have to have something that looks like a shower head, but is much, much more expensive and uh, geometrically complex. And just getting that without adding in all the extra things that you have to be able to do, um, like the baffles and changing the droplet size, like that, uh, it's it's so cool. It's really really neat. Yeah, I guess that's why they need over thirteen hundred tests to really <laughs> try to pin down what was going on. Well, that was also sort of a. I don't want to say it was trial and error because there there was theory and uh, and modeling that went into that as well, but. There was some somewhat trial and error. Yeah. So the combustion instability on the F1 engine was that? Would you say that that was due to its massive size? And on a smaller engine, do we still see uh, these baffles on the, the injector plates, or is that like something that's just unique to the F1 engine? Because I don't think I see it too often. I mean, I don't look up a lot of engines, but you know, <laughs> if I see pictures of them on YouTube, I do tend to not see those big three-inch baffles. Well, if you remember, the baffles are for the tangential and radial instability. So it really depends engine to engine what type of instability that you're seeing and also the mode of that instability. So and a lot of a lot of I'm I'm probably shooting myself in the foot here but um, <laughs> we we do tend to see a lot of longitudinal instabilities. Um now that that's not always the case um, and it I shouldn't generalize at all, but the baffles were for tangential and radial motion. So they were for gas uh, or velocities that were moving in parallel to the injector phase. And that's something that I wasn't familiar with. And so I guess the question was rather, is that kind of instability caused by having such a large surface area? Or does that just not make a difference? Well, it looks like part of it was, um, because when they broke up that large surface area, then they didn't have mm. as big an, of an issue with it. So that, that that's part of what it was. But yeah, I don't know if I want to say too much more. Again, again with the generalizing, because it, it is very much on a case by case basis. Um, the solution that you take, um, and as you, as as we've discussed, I think you know it's very system dependent to uh, sort of produce to produce the instability um, that that you do end up seeing. Um, so what what's going on in your propellant system and what's going on structurally with your vehicle um, that all that all um, sort of flows down to what's happening in your combustion chamber and how it responds. Yeah, I think I think that's a very reasonable way to answer that question. Uh, so solid rockets tend to be simpler, by the way. <laughs> and again, I may be shooting myself in the foot here by saying solid rockets tend to be simpler, um, but at least in solid rockets, it's usually an issue with either the grain geometry or the propellant. Those are kind of your two options. Although, again, with the shooting myself in the foot on the SRBs for the shuttle, um, that 14 hertz instability is actually due to vortices shed off of the segments on the boosters. Oh. So so it's the fact that it's built segment in segments yes. you get mm -hmm. tore. Oh wow. You get okay. these vortices shed off of the um I guess the segment interfaces. Yeah. Um when when they get exposed. Um and so that that contributes to that that 14 hertz instability. And I think they actually had similar issues on the Ariane 5 solids. But uh, yeah, with with pretty much there there's a long list of military application solids that have seen combustion instability um, and, and various ways that they've, they've dealt with them. 
Um, so I think one of the examples that gets brought up a lot is the Minuteman II third stage, um, which was a Hercules M57. And this is in the 1960s. And they experienced three failures in test flights. Again, people are scratching their heads, saying what's going on. This, this happens a lot, people scratching their heads. <laughs> um, but um, they, uh, they traced the, f the failures to the propellant. Um, so they had different lots of propellant delivered to them. And lot 10, and, and subsequently, um, they, they had these failures. Um, they always had had some oscillations in the first 15 seconds of firing, um, but the oscillations that were problematic were much larger and they actually caused failure of a component in the thrust control system. So what had happened between lots 9 and 10, uh, propellant lots 9 and 10, was that they had switched their aluminum supplier. So with the new lot 10 and beyond supplier, they had smaller aluminum particles and also the coating on the, on the particles changed. Um, so apparently one of the combustion products of, of the Minuteman third stage um, is aluminum oxide, Al203. Um, so these smaller aluminum particles actually led to smaller particles in the exhaust. The, the atoms are the same size, but the particles themselves that yep. were formed in the exhaust. We're talking about like millions of atoms in a clump. Right. Yes. Um, so they had these smaller particles in the exhaust, um, and they didn't have as large of a damping effect on the acoustics as the larger particles had from the previous supplier. So because there was less damping in the product that was moving out of, of the engine, um, there was more energy available to huh. contribute to this instability feedback cycle. So even as small a change as changing the size of your aluminum particles, um, really contributed to to problems with with that third stage. Um, there's actually something similar, but not quite, on the the Pathfinder Rad rockets. So this is a 1999 uh, Mars Pathfinder, and Rad stands for Rocket Assisted Descent. So this was after the capsule entered um, Mars atmosphere, if you want to call it that. Um, <laughs> it was carrying. <laughs> carrying Sojourner, and there were three rockets that were used to slow the descent vehicle before the airbags deployed, and then the thing just went bounce, 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 bounce on the surface. So these three rockets were, were pretty small by, by space standards. They're about 30 inches long, um, and they were test dropping these at China Lake in, in California. I think it's a naval, naval test site. Um, so during an early drop test of this vehicle assembly from a helicopter, they detected longitudinal instabilities um, in all three motors. So their, their dynamic pressure transducers um, said, hey, there's, there's large pressure fluctuations here. Um, so these rockets were um, AP, HTPB, and 2% aluminum. So AP is alumi aluminum perchlorate, um, HTPB, HTPB, sorry, is rubber. It's uh, hydroxyl terminated polybutadiene. And then it was 2% aluminum. And the, the aluminum is there as, as a fuel. So they, they solved the problem by increasing the aluminum from 2% to 16%. So they, they increased the, the amount of aluminum in proportion to everything else that was in that, that mix, that solid rocket mix. Um, they didn't really have time or money to investigate they just knew that in past programs, if you added more aluminum 
it tended to work, so that's what they did, and it did work. Um, so it's it's possible that, as in the case we discussed before, that particle damping was one of the contributors to instability. So by introducing more aluminum particles into the product, um, they were able to damp out some of the energy in that system. Yeah, and so I don't understand quite why size makes such a big difference. Is it just because the size of the particle can absorb certain frequencies? I think um, you, you have to think more about the flow field that's going around the particle rather than what the particle itself is doing. So granted, um, it takes um, energy to move, it takes more energy to move around a larger particle than a smaller particle. So, so that's one of, one of the things. But then what the flow is actually doing um, around a larger particle is you're going to introduce more turbulence behind that particle. So that larger particle is going to have larger drag. And that drag is, it contributes to entropy. So you're introducing uh, more losses into the system by introducing more drag. I think that's that's part of the particle damping theory. And then mass um, is also a, a huge factor here, apparently. Just the increasing, for example, that, that aluminum from 2% to 16%, um, you introduce just a lot more particles to, to do this damping. Um, so I, I, I went looking really briefly um, to see what in new space, what experience they may have had or have been having with with combustion instability and honestly there's just not a lot of information available uh, which is sort of understandable uh, when you are trying to develop and market new rockets you really don't want to shake anybody's confidence in your system or <laughs> um, it's it's bad for publicity when things blow up not even blow up when you if you say you have a potential problem um, it, it's bad for publicity and bad for winning contracts. But so apparently, um, scaled composites slash Virgin Galactic um, and you know, Sierra Nevada, who is contracting for them uh, for their for their engine for Spaceship One, uh, apparently they did run into a decent amount of combustion instability. I think uh, their their former one of their former test pilots, uh, Brian Binney, I think he actually made the X Prize flight uh, or one of them. But uh, he said, let's see, I'm, I'm going to quote here, uh, the Spaceship One rocket motor didn't run like a Lexus. It was cranky, shuddering, shaking, vibrating motor, which towards the end of the burn sounded like a screaming cat. It's very, should have been a poet. <laughs> yeah, <right. laughs> so I think um, Spaceship Two started with, and I mean, that's a fairly clear description of something being unstable in that motor. Um, Probably not enough to apparently do too much damage, but um, it doesn't sound like he appreciated the ride either. Um, so Spaceship Two, I know, started with a motor that was derived from from this this uh, this motor. Um, so it was it's a hybrid motor. So the oxidizer is liquid and the the fuel is HDPB, but it was switched to a nylon-based solid fuel called thermoplastic polyamide for the, for the fuel side in May 2014. And so there was some conjecture um, in the news media that HDPB was the at fault for causing the engine instabilities. Um, and other people noted that uh, there were ride quality issues caused by oscillations in the engine. Um, eventually, Spaceship Two in 2015 they did switch back to HTPB um, so it sounded like they 
either thought it was worth the risk or it sounds like or they had some solution for that. And again, there's not a lot of information that, that I was able to find. Uh, but maybe somebody with more time on their hands can, can look into that. Yeah, well, I, yeah, I don't know if we can find any more information. I'd love to see if the chat can dig something up. But we talked about this on the show back when they made the decision. We were just like, yeah, we have no idea what inputs go into this decision. And it's it's interesting to hear you talk about, you know, potential negative input to switching to HTPB. I, d I don't know anything um, whether Blue Origin themselves have experienced combustion instability. And I, I know that... Uh, you know, they, they were just awarded the, the Vulcan main engine. But ULA, who's who's uh, bringing them on as the contractor, have mentioned in the past that they're very aware of a threat posed by combustion instabilities. And they've actually emphasized that this is one of the main risks that they'd like to retire. Um, so either ULA or Blue or both of them may have had some firsthand experience um, with combustion instability. Blue Origin has in the past lost test hardware, but again, this may or may not be related. So there's there's not a lot. And then the last thing that I was able to dig up was that Rocket Lab um, is apparently sponsoring some university research on fuel sloshing control in relation to combustion instability. And generally, you don't really sponsor research on something unless you're concerned about it. <laughs> right. So maybe maybe they're maybe they're looking into that further. Um, I guess to wrap up, uh, maybe discussing what's in the future just a little bit um, for combustion instability, because honestly, you know, the path forward is somewhat clear, um, just because we don't really understand everything about combustion instability. There's a clear need to, I guess, refine that understanding. There's a lot of good theory, and there's a lot of uh, good work that has been done on it, um, in both the rocket and in the uh, jet engine worlds. Um, so, but uh, even even at that point, um, there, there's still a lot of very complex factors that contribute to instability. Um, so further uh, understanding it and being able to model it, to predict what's happening before it happens, um, it's a very complex problem and needs a lot of computer resources. Mm -hmm. And even even if you have the computer resources, um, I guess integrating all of the factors uh, in, into your, your setup of that problem is very complex. Um, so the current uh, way that we solve uh, combustion instabilities with damping and, and the reduction schemes, these are all passive uh, damping schemes or redesigns. So these are all systems that they are there regardless of whether or not you see instability. Mm -hmm. They're just designed into the hardware or designed into the system. Um, so they don't actually respond actively to dynamics. So the current systems are all called passive systems. They have There have been proposals for active systems. They've been proposed, they've been tested in laboratories, but not, to my knowledge, implemented on any any flight or production vehicle. Usually, these systems involve a microphone to tell you that, hey, I have I have instability or oscillations, and then that input goes to a control system, which would respond by actuating something else in the system, like a fuel valve. You would do it in such a way that the phase would reduce the oscillation. So think of it in terms of noise canceling headphones. You have an input and an output. Um, so that, that would be 
something that, that people are starting to work towards. But what you have to do is you have to provide an accurate model for the controller, right. which brings us back to this, you know, refining understanding and be able to model and predict problem. So I guess that's that's the current state of, of understanding. Yeah, I'm going to be shocked if we ever see active systems because, I mean, there, there are so many compounding problems and all it takes is to just be delayed by a, a fraction of your oscillation frequency and all of a sudden you're making things worse instead of making them better. Yeah, like that, it just hurts my head to think about a computer trying to compensate for like Pogo or something like that. So I think they, they've been demonstrated on a laboratory scale at the mm. very least. And again, it would be a very idealized environment, um, but they have done some demonstrations of active systems. At least, you know, all these uh, oscillations, the combustion oscill oscillations you've been talking about, they're at least, you know, a handful of hertz to maybe a couple tens of hertz at most and not like you know mm. something that's just so rapid that i couldn't even imagine next generation or does that not really matter there there have been definitely recorded cases where you've gone up to thousands of hertz oh um, so uh for this uh, spaceship one description this thing sounding like a screaming cat that is very high frequency so so in that case you'd, you'd be looking at at a couple thousand hertz. Okay, I see. Well, Aaron, uh, I feel like I have learned so much in the last hour. Yeah, my head hurts a little bit, but like in a good way. It, it doesn't hurt as much as mine did when I was preparing this. <laughs> I'll tell you. Well, thank you so much for doing one of our more complex uh, data relay segments. I've seen some of the things that you're planning in the future, and I'm really excited to hear more. We've got some fun stuff coming up from you. All right, thanks so much. This was really enjoyable. Time to move on to upcoming launches. we got two launches and one other thing coming up. So our first launch is on October 9th. It'll be a Long March 2C rocket carrying the Yaogan 3201 Chinese reconnaissance satellite. So they're continuing their high rate of launches. And so this is going to be on October 9th uh, at 2.36 UTC with a about a 30-minute window from 2.36 to 3.03 UTC. Launching from somewhere in the Xichang Satellite Launch Center. <laughs> yeah, and that's about all we know or will know. Okay. Yep. And then next up, uh, on October 11th, we have a Soyuz FG, the Soyuz MS-10 mission. This is Expedition 57. And the cosmonauts going up, or cosmonauts slash astronauts, we have our Alexei Ovchinin and NASA astronaut Nick Haig. And actually, yeah, and that's it, right? Because I think we're usually used to saying three, right? Mm -hmm. They're limiting the number of Russian astronauts on station right now. Yeah, so this launch will be from Baikonur Cosmodrome in Kazakhstan. They will be rendezvousing with station and staying there for six months. And the launch will be at 0840 in 15 seconds UTC. And that is an instantaneous launch window, it looks like. So maybe check that out if you can. Yeah, <laughs> instantaneous launch window. And so they're going to be arriving at the International Space Station. They are scheduled to arrive at 1044 a.m. Eastern Time on October 11th. Uh, that's the scheduled time for docking. The coverage for that will begin at 10 a.m. Uh, Eastern Time. That's on October uh, the 11th. And then after that, they will do a hatch opening and welcoming ceremonies. That is going to happen approximately at 1.10 p.m. Eastern Time, of course, on the 11th still. And coverage for that will begin at 12.45 p.m. Eastern Time. And then one more thing, next Tuesday, so the 
the day that our next episode comes out, uh, there's going to be a U.S. spacewalk uh, preview briefing. I always uh, suggest watching these because they're so, so good. So that's uh, October 16th uh, at 2 p.m. Eastern Time, and uh, you can watch that on NASA TV. All right, so those are your upcoming space plot events. Which means it's time to do over the show, and also time to thank Ronald Jenkins and Tim Dodd for our music. We record live on Sundays at 9 a.m. Pacific, 12 p.m. Eastern. Thank you to our $5 and up Patreon supporters for joining our recording sessions and helping us make correction burns on the fly. If you want to support the show too, please leave us a review wherever you listen, or visit theorbitalmechanics.com slash support for our Patreon campaign, affiliate links, and other resources. For more information on this episode, such as show notes and other links, visit our website at theorbitalmechanics.com. Be sure to check out our store for mission patches, t-shirts, and hoodies. You can talk about the show with other listeners on Twitter and Reddit. We're Orbital Podcast on both. And you can talk directly to us by emailing info at theorbitalmechanics.com. So that's it for this week, and we will see you next time on Orbit. Until then, later. Goodbye, everybody. Bye. Bye.